Hello and welcome to another episode of Joe Blogs About Films. Thank you so much, as always, for clicking on this podcast and this episode. Whether you're a first-time listener, a long-time listener, however many episodes you've listened to along this journey to 100 episodes, it is super, super appreciated. It's a lot of waffling, I will admit. That's a lot of film and TV waffling, but still, thank you so much for, for bearing with, for putting up, for all the comments and feedbacks and, yeah, just discussions on the back of any episodes that we've had it means the absolute world. So here we are, episode 100. Let's get the celebrations underway, or at least get some confetti going. Hopefully we'll go out with a bang and do this episode justice, because I want to focus on the first ever summer blockbuster, and that was from 1975. Obviously we're going to be talking about Spielberg's Jaws, easily my favourite film of all time. The amount of times I've seen this film re-released at the cinema, any given opportunity. I even had the pleasure of doing a music and film module at university, and of course, the first film that we watched was Jaws, because let's be honest, John Williams' score in this just goes hand in hand with the imagery that you see on this film. You know, it is such a vital part of this film, and I still think to this day that is why this film is such a huge success. Not only a a case of fantastic acting, directing, script as well, obviously, which was obviously being written as they went along behind the scenes, uh, the score just brings it all together just so well in this film. Yeah, I think we've all got a Jaws story, you know what I mean? Like in terms of whether you were at, whether you were fortunate to see it in the original release in 1975 or at any given point in your life when, when you first stumbled upon it. Like I said, for me, I've got my own Jaws story, which you will probably be hearing in this episode. But everyone who's seen Jaws, um, I haven't re- I, I've, I'm yet to meet someone that's turned around and gone, yeah, it's not that great. Because, <laughs> I mean, that would be an interesting conversation. And again, if, you, if you're not a fan of Jaws, that's fine. But for me, it is up there. Arguably, like I say, it's always I'm always toying between Jaws and Jurassic Park because both films I absolutely love. And of course, both films directed by Spielberg as well. So here we are, the episode 100. I did have a few messages after the Jaws 2 revisit that we did a few uh, about a few couple of months back now saying, when are you going to do Jaws? When are you going to do Jaws? Here we are, finally. Uh, episode 100, gotta be, it's gotta be done. But this podcast, as usual, is available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you hit notification as well on either of those streaming sites to be notified on your phone when the new episode is uploaded. Of course, as well though, you can keep up to date with the with the with the podcast by jumping onto Facebook, sorry, and searching Joe Blogs about films. Give us a like and a follow on there. Do get in touch as well on that. It's been great, as I say, more recently with some of the episodes that have been uploaded, just to hear people's thoughts and opinions on it. Love that. Keep that coming. It's very very much appreciated. And finally, as well if you're on spotify or whatever apple music this and that leave us a review because that would be absolutely lovely so here we go episode 100 jaws as i say 1974 peter benchley released this uh released a novel uh which absolutely took just took off you know it took the it took readers by storm but at the same time instilled this huge fear about this man-eating shark or at least just sharks in general you know peter benchley really kind of it, it was it's, it's a monster story, you know. I mean, it's not these. This isn't how an actual shark behaves. But on the back of the book, you know, the impact that it had on shark hunting rose drastically. The impact that it had on holiday bookings dropped drastically, all because of this very well put together story. Granted, I am on the fence or on the side of that fence that the film is better than the book, which is very rare. So don't hate too much me. Don't hate me too much for saying that because I do love the book. Don't get me wrong, but I think what Spielberg did with this and say with John Williams' added score as well, I personally think that it's a very, very like it's a much better story. There's a few subplots in the in the book that I'm not too fussed about. So if you've not read the book 
Um, I may, I might, I might slightly go over a few spoilers. I'm not going to sit here and try and compare page by page what they took out of the book, this and the other. But there's just a few key subplots I think benefited the film having been removed. Sorry from from the story. Spielberg's obviously gone on to say as well such things that like he didn't find as many some critics as well found that the characters in the book were just not very likable characters. And Spielberg himself saying when he was reading it, he was rooting for the shark all the way. So you want to change that characteristic and make us all kind of be on the side of the characters. Because th- this is the thing, like, I am all the way through rooting for Brody in this film. You know, what an absolute fantastic character that is. And the impact and influence that Brody's had on much, much more film and media, I should say, ever since it's released. It- it's so easy to spot, you know what I mean? You only have to look at, I know Strange Things is a huge homage, but the amount of stuff that... You see in like the lights of Hopper and stuff, it's a very broad yes character. But anyways, back to what I was saying about Peter Benchley and his book. Like I said, for me, I do prefer the film, but his way of depicting the shark obviously was completely wrong. You know what I mean? Like this shark would not a shark would not go off and just attack a certain town and keep keep doing that kind of thing. I guess there's the argument about the territoriality aspect of it that Hooper brings up that they'll just stay in a certain place and it's it's only a theory at that point that he obviously does believe in. But there there could be the argument for that. But at the end of the day, if you just see Jaws as a monster film you just you're in for, you know what I mean you're in for an absolute treat because that's what it is I think that's I just, I'm just a sucker as you probably established for many of the podcast episodes that I've done whether it's about Godzilla or whoever you know I I love monster films so this for me was like I think pretty much maybe the one that started it all like I said this in Jurassic Park just started that love and obviously Godzilla as well the the originals really really like I honed in on those kind of uh, on those kind of films would you believe but Peter Benchley as um, obviously later on you know regretted his portrayal of the sharks and such and actually with his wife Wendy became an avid conservationist working with environmental groups and research scientists on behalf of the oceans and sharks everywhere until he passed away in 2006 which again I guess I guess if you write a novel that has that much of an impact and obviously the book then gets made into a film and then it has again that drastic impact on the shark community to air quote I guess you would maybe have some guilt because he, I think he's gone on record as saying that he, he he did a bit of background study for sharks, but not an awful, not not enough in the sense to really try and make it a, a real shark story kind of thing. But that's the thing, isn't it? That's the beauty of this. It is just a story. So you can kind of just do what you want. I mean, I know there's there's going to be people that go like, well, that's inaccurate. But for, for what he did with this story to, you know, the film and how much it's still impacting pop culture and, and everything today... I still think it's a testament to his to his work. So say it's Peter Bench's idea. Spielberg, yes, did a marvelous job. But what a simple and niche idea to an extent. But at the same time, having yeah a, a very wider scale of just didn't want it just to be like three men on the hunt for a shark. You know, it's not all about that. And I think that that's what Spielberg drove in is that it is definitely a character study. It's a character piece on these three men on the boat on the orca who obviously have been pulled into this situation and circumstance where they have to now save or at least just just take down the shark to stop to save the community, obviously, to save Amity. Um, and yeah, like I said, the cast is padded out with some great names. I've already mentioned Roy, Sh- Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, as well as Hooper, and Robert Shaw as Quince, Lorraine Gary, as well as Ellen Brody. I, I've always, I think I've always said, I think I said about George 2 podcast, I really love their relationship between Roy Scheider and, and uh, Lorraine Gary's uh, Brody um, uh, and Ellen Brody. Um, and then you've got Marie Hamilton as Vaughn, just to like kind of, give you the, the the big the 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 big stars of the film and then obviously on top of that you've got the shark himself Bruce the shark that was named after Spielberg's lawyer which yeah steals I would say steals a show but he's only in it for about five ten minutes so it's not like he's kind of dictating the actual play well yeah he is and he isn't you know what I mean but I, I this is the thing 
I'm not pretty much going to bring anything new to the table about Jaws. I can't, I'm not going to sit here. I, I might bring some trivia or whatever, some background that you might not have heard before. But at the same time, we all know it's widely documented, obviously, about the really difficult and, um, yeah, the difficult shooting that they had with creating Jaws. It was, you know, the script wasn't finished when they started. They were writing pages as they went on. The shark wouldn't work, obviously. It's actually now been adapted into. It was at the. Uh, it was at. The, it was in London. It was part of the West End or whatever. But there was the show that started off. I believe it started off at Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, the, was it called The Shark Is Broken, which did star actually uh, the late uh, Robert Shaw's son as his character Quint. So that was nice. I didn't get a chance to see it, but from the reviews and from people that did get to see it, I heard many many good things about it. But of course, to say back to what I was saying there. It's well documented that the shooting of this film was um, was bad. It's like they had a really, really torrid, torrid time. I think Spielberg got on to say that he was naive to think that he could shoot the film at sea because obviously the sea salt and everything would just corrupt and cause the shark to break. Because when they first tested Bruce the shark, it was tested in water just before it arrived at Martha's Vineyard. That's where that's that Martha's Vineyard is what they used as obviously Amity. And it, it worked perfectly. Obviously because it was non-salt water they were testing it in. But then as soon as it hit salt water... It just wrecked havoc with the shark's controls. And again, that's just notorious throughout the film. I'm not going to keep regurgitating that because we know, obviously, that that is pretty much the case. And that's why we're given such a compelling point of view and story, I should say, about it with this shark because they were limited to what they could do. And I love that kind of twist of, right, okay, so we can't show you the shark, but we can show you what the shark sees. And the only bits that you do see of the shark, you know, like I say, it's limited to five, ten minutes, which is, again... The influence, obviously, that I've already spoken about before, and like the likes of the more the first Godzilla film from 2014, or you know, less is more approach, was thanks to Jaws and what Spielberg did. I know as well that when they first, um, uh, when 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 uh, Richard Dreyfus was offered the role of Hooper, he originally wanted to turn it down. He turned it down so originally because he wanted to watch it rather than star in it, and then he eventually said that he came to his senses. And he, within a few days, he, he stated that he just knew straight away just how much of a, a genius that Spielberg was. And this is the thing as well, sorry, because this is the first film real like big blockbuster film for or big film motion picture I should say for Steven Spielberg obviously blockbusters in the summer were not, weren't, weren't known weren't common this was the first film to do that but Spielberg had just done a TV film called Jewel uh, which is again a, a definitely worth the watch and on the back of that he's been given he's given the task of creating you know the, this book in taking the filmmaking into a screenplay onto you know motion picture the book is obviously very well regarded and obviously a lot of fans behind it there's obviously added pressure with that as well but what Spielberg did it's just absolutely enthralling. And, and again, like I say, it was meant to come out in Christmas 1974, but due to the obviously overrunning of the shooting schedule and the, the, the pushbacks and pushbacks, it actually obviously came out in the summer of, of 1975, sorry. And what used to be the case with cinema was that films, they'd always save their big films to air quote for, you know, the end of the year or the start of the, you know, the start of the year. So it'd be, they'd been, the, the summer basically was kind of like, Films that were just kind of not really a drop in the ocean, in a sense. They were just released by studios. If people picked them up to see, that's great, but they weren't really big films. So, Jaws, as I say, when that came out in the summer, it just felt perfectly because I say I think it was a PG at the time, which is baffling when you look at some of the some of the stuff that you see in this film. You're like, okay, I don't know how they got away with that, but that's fine. But it worked really well because kids weren't at school and then obviously able to go to the cinema to watch this film. It just took off, like I said. The the Americans typically enjoyed the outdoors instead, but because the film was so good beachgoers were just just flocking to go see it and the movie they say became the highest grossing film of all time up to that point it became the first film to gross over 100 million dollars in theatrical rentals which is the figure the studio nets from the north america box office after the movie theaters take their cut so roughly half of the box office gross 
and this is it. That's that's how the summer blockbuster was born. It was something that uh, you could see that from maybe behind the scenes. Spielberg obviously uh, he was trying to make the best film he possibly could, but there must have been some reservations about this film obviously coming out, especially when they were making this film and going through all these issues. You know, not only were the shark having problems, but there was some real tension as well on set, in particular between Richard Dreyfus and uh, and Robert Shaw, who butted heads an awful lot. I think I, I don't know if I'm right in saying there may have been at least one physical altercation between the two of them. A lot of it had to do with, obviously, Robert Shaw's unfortunate drinking problem that he had. There's more to do with that as well, in particular with the Indianapolis speech, the famous Indianapolis speech as well, um, You know where Robert Shaw had to do a number of takes because he just was pretty drunk. He was pretty drunk, in fairness, when he did that. So there's all this tension building up. You must be thinking all the way through, is, is this going to work? Like, is this ever going to see the light of day? Um, and yes, yeah, Spielberg just, though does what he does he's a magician you know what i mean and uh, just some of the things that he decides to do with it not only like i say with the point of view by having all these shark problems by only giving so much away in terms of the shark scale it really did leave it to the imagination especially like i say with the pov but also this idea of having um or at least what he, i say idea he did do was that he shot roughly 25 percent of the film from water level to provide the viewers the perspective as if they were treading water it's just all about the senses and the atmosphere and the tone, and Spielberg just nailed it with this, because the film is essentially split into two halves, much like the book is as well, that, you know, the first half is all about the land, and then the second half is about, you know, them catching it at sea. And I think it just perfectly splits and very well balanced. And the film, the one thing when I've rewatched it re- more recently, say I, I, I did check it out in, in 3D, um, for the for the uh, for the anniversary story, which was a, which was a nice transition to the three D format, but the three the three D didn't really add anything more to it. And again, I'll, I'll maybe talk a little bit more about that uh, at some point of this podcast. But yeah, I had the pleasure of watching it again at the, on the big screen. And then obviously before I did this, I watched it again just to kind of just sit in my own space and just really take it all in. And like I just I feel that the pacing of this film is just perfect. Like there's some as a kid, I remember watching it and think and like never really never really like. Uh, getting bored you know i mean i still never get bored watching it but i just found that it just moved so freely and so 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 very well paced i just it's just you know the sequences that keep popping on like i feel like they should have been later on in the film but it's here we are i'm at it already kind of thing so i just think it's um yeah it, it, it's a, a, just an absolutely fantastic set. and the performances are absolutely amazing in this film you know like brody roy Scheid. i mean i am going to pretty much split this between the characters because as i say there's just so much to really enjoy with these with these three main main protagonists. You know, you've got your, your Brody, your Hooper, and and your Quint. Uh, as much as like Quint's are pretty much like he's likable, but he's just a bit dislikable at the same time. But I like that because you need that kind of l- loose cannon within this because you've got Brody, obviously the cop that is just trying to protect the the actual the, the Amity Island, doing his best that he possibly can do with the forever pushbacks he's getting, if not from the mayor, but from everyone else. Obviously, just wanting the beaches open, this and that. And then at the same time, you've got Hooper, obviously, who's got an absolute admiration for sharks, who loves them, who obviously wouldn't be going out and gunning to kill the shark. He'd rather study it, this and that. And then you've got Quint, whose pure goal in life is to kill every shark, you know? Like, he will take out any shark, any shark, wherever it is, you know? So it's a great, like, three, three, like, three-way like dynamic within this, within this film that I... Uh, that it's just so that's so much more enjoyable, and you've got to remember as well that Quint only turns up for five minutes or whatever it is in the first half, and then he's one of the main characters for the for the latter. It's just brilliant. But we'll start off with Brody to say because this chap is terrified of water, bless him, like absolutely terrified of water. You know, it's his first summer as well in Amity. He's originally from New York, and he, and he has to tackle a great white. Not only has to tackle a great white, but he has to tackle obviously ta- take, facing on the whole community and the, and the mayor and such who just you know 
he's dedicated to his job at the end of the day, but the, the mayor and such and everyone in the community, just, they want summer dollars. That's how they keep banging about. The thought of closing the beaches due to an alleged shark attack is not something they want to admit nor do for the sake of losing money. So he's already a say of, of, a, of an uphill battle to start with because he, see, he sees the first victim and he's like, this is a definite shark attack, you know what I mean? But then you get that fantastic shot, which another thing in respect to what Spielberg does is there's so many long takes in this film that there's just, it's just really, really excellent. There's what, the, obviously the opening sequence is a long, is a long take as the camera pans across the beach of the teenagers as they're drinking by the campfire before Chrissy goes off into the sea and gets eaten by the shark, which is a harrowing opening, let's be honest. But the, the scene when he's on like that with his car and they're moving over to uh, from from one point to the other across the across the sea um and he's talking to the mayor and the council who were trying to say it's a, a boat propeller accident whatever ridiculous it is that is all one take i think it's so so engaging and so gripping uh but back to that obviously so he's as as what he was saying in terms of like losing money and stuff he's like the mayor is like well you yell barracuda everyone says huh what but you yell shark we've got a panic on our hand on the 4th of july the priorities are all over the place i almost see like the mayor as like the shark on the land, like just gobbling up as much as he possibly can in just just for money, you know what I mean? Like and then you've got the shark itself out, who's the nemesis that he doesn't really know that he's got, you know what I mean? Like because the mayor is just just completely choosing to be blind to it. But the other interesting thing with Brody is that what I found that Spielberg does in terms of his introduction, and the, I love all the introductions to these main characters, but for Brody, the first shot we see obviously it transitions from night to day, obviously after Chris is killed. And it's just a wide shot of the sea, perfectly blue skies, blue ocean, this and that. And we just see like a blurry uh, blurry back of the head of Brody as he sits up from the bed looking out at the sea. The sea is in focus, but Brody's like back of the head. That's not straight away staring out at the very thing that terrifies him. Um, and a nice touch as well that he doesn't want his sons to have the same fear that he has. He makes that clear, obviously, after when Alex Kittner, the young boy, is killed. Um, that, you know, when, when Ellen Brody's like, I don't think, you know, Michael ever go in the sea again after what happened yesterday. And he's like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't say that. I don't want that. So it's nice that although it's like a fear that he has, obviously it's purely based on drowning, as he states, it's something that he doesn't want passed on. And that's something that is a, a very believable trait with a, with a, with a parent, parental figure. You know, they, everyone has these fears and such, but they just really don't want them to transition down to their kids. So they can't maybe enjoy certain things like going into the sea as, um, as, as obviously Brody doesn't kind of thing. But as I've already stated, the, the relationship that he has with his wife is it, so believable for me in this film. Like, and even in the second one as well, there's obviously a clear breakdown, obviously, in the second one because no one knows if he's just having a bit of a, a mental breakdown or anything on the back of the first shark attack to now what's happening in the second one. But in the first one, again, it's a really good relationship and it does get strained a little bit in this due to the shark issue, but probably not as much as obviously what it is in the second one. But the start of the film, it's like she's joking... You know about how in Amity you say yeah when he's in reference to him saying that the kids are in the backyard, but then following the shark attack in the pond that causes the son Michael to go into shock and obviously nearly get killed himself. When he gives George back in the hospital to his wife, she replies, he says, "Oh, take take him back home," and she's like, "Back to New York." And he's like, "No, here." Just showing that damage on a personal and psychological level that these shark attacks are having on Helen as well as the rest of the town. I don't. Th I think that Helen represents most of the other town. Maybe not to the same extent that she's too fussed about the summer dollars to air quote because it's nothing about that for her at all she's just she's moved she's she's a new islander or whatever she's moved there with the family it's not like she's got any reason to gain from having the beach so but it's just that everyone else she wants to fit in that community you know what i mean i think that she's a great point of view for the audience to kind of really see in that moment anyway just how much that this this is now really impacting because that's the turning point as well for the mayor to be like 
you know, my my kid was on that beach as well. It could have been my son that got like obviously nearly attacked or whatever. It's a real turning point, especially because I say it happens to something so someone so close to Brody as well. This guy that's been pushing and pushing and pushing for the beaches to be closed, for more backup, for whatever to be done in terms of catching it. I, I know there's the argument as well that they do think they've caught the shark when they get a tiger shark and Hooper obviously points out that the bite radius does not match this and that. But yeah, I think that that moment and say when when Michael is uh, is nearly taken out by the shark, it's a real turning point um, for as I say for for for, for Helen as well as the rest of the town as well. They're, they're both on very different levels of fear and concern throughout the film. You know, especially with how Brody has let this case take over his life with the level of reading and research that he does on the sharks. Some nice foreshadowing here, actually. When he's reading this and studying those books uh, before Helen comes in and startles him and they have a laugh about it, this and that, again, I think that, in a way, just on another side note, is that it shows you, again, that Brody is really, really f- homed in and focused on learning more and understanding sharks whereas Helen's almost like I don't know it's almost like it, it, it can't happen to them you know what I mean like, I almost think that it couldn't happen to them as a family until it almost does you know what I mean until that's that's when the shock genuinely sits in and then by the time that Brody's due to leave on the orca she's fully on the same page as him you know she's sad to see him go there's that hug of that embrace there's obviously that moment where she's like what do I tell the kids when they ask where you are it's like tell them I've gone fishing lovely moment great line great script there I, I just I, it's like, that's that's the first time I would say other than you know their concern and, and care for their kids and such I think that that's when they realize that they are definitely on the same page I'm not saying that there's been enough to establish that there's real friction in there but I think that because she's probably not really understanding what her husband's going through, it's only until that moment that she's like, there it is, it's clicked, right, okay. Something really bad nearly happened to our family. I, I understand why this has taken over my, my husband's life. Uh, but sorry, back to the foreshadowing side of it, when he's reading the novel and he's reading the book or whatever about um, about sharks itself, you know, the, the moment there when he sees the shark chewing on a tank, obviously then on, that's what he ends up blowing up. Like I said, the shark ends up chewing the tank at the end of the film. And Brody, uh, yeah, smile, you son of him, pop, there you go. But there's, there's some great foreshadowing with that, even more so when they're on the Orca. And Hooper's bringing all his equipment on. He's got all these, you know, he's got the compressed air, oxygen, and this, that, and the other. And when Brody pulls the wrong wire and this and that, and he's like, they, they could blow up. And then uh, Quint's like, oh, I don't know what the shark's going to do with that. Maybe eat it, I don't know. And it's like, yep, there it is. It's all there. And again, the genius of Spielberg, man, the absolute genius of Spielberg and and this is it like Brody's just that character that he's 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 determined to do what's right by him and by the community itself and if that means obviously having to kind of share a boat with the likes of Quint this and that um he'll do it you know what I mean like he will he will do it because that's the goal at the end of the day it's the it's the idea that it's his he wants to get this sorted. it's his charter is what he's saying he wants to get this sorted and it's great that he brings in Hooper as well because I love Hooper Richard Dreyfus as a character I think it's fantastic but I love Hooper and Brody together. Like I, I, I'd, I'd be more than happy to see like a spin-off of those two, just wisecracking or whatever, because they just get it straight away. Or like they just have a real good connection, like a good buddy feel between the two of them. As soon as they meet, they've got to fully understand. I think because obviously Brody's been saying for starters for, for for ages, look, this is a shark problem. Regardless of what you say, this is a definite shark problem. Hooper coming in, obviously viewing the, the remains of the first victims, straight away they are on that same page. And and this is the thing. I I think I just like Hooper's. I don't know, like a whole aura, you know what I mean? Or at least it's this character's personality that he has. Um, this uh, this guy that is so in love with sharks. His attitude towards catching the shark is completely opposite to Quince, obviously. You know, he first came across sharks. Uh, like, sorry, their introduction, sorry, is so, so different and so far apart. Hooper's introduction to sharks, obviously, is that 
when he was a young boy, his boat obviously got torn to shreds or attacked by a shark. And as he, I think it was a thresher shark, he says it was, and he swam back to obviously the land and turned around and could see from the distance his boat, his boat had been destroyed by the shark. And ever since then, he's been fascinated by them. Comparing that to Quince, which we'll get to obviously with the Indianapolis, that is, you know, ever since then, he's been in awe of them. Whereas Quince, like, nope, they're evil. They need to go. That's that. Like, he's got this huge respect and admiration to these creatures you know he's well presented well smart very wealthy character as well his equipment in the boat is completely opposite to what you see on quince orca and just the whole style and mannerisms or whatever that he has hooper is like a, a very well well off or well put together round character like the the way that he as i already said appreciates the sharks you know he's using phrases when they're on the orca like come here darling and beautiful when catching shots of the uh of the shark within the film Whereas Quint only has one motive, and that's to kill the shark and all sharks on the back of that experience, that harrowing experience that he has, um, that he had in the war. Hooper as well, obviously, is um, part of the film that has the probably the biggest scare, I would say. At least it's, it's always like voted as like the top, within like top 50 or at least top 20 or whatever, scariest moments within film, obviously, with Ben Gardner's boat when they go into, when he finds, when he just goes to see the, the well, the boat itself and finds the great white shark too funny for Ben Gardner's eyeball missing face just to kind of pop out there, which is funny because Spielberg only put that in after he'd done the film itself. He reached, he shot, I think that might be one of the last, I think the last shot that he did of the film, he wasn't even present for it, was the ending of the film because this film, much to the difference of pretty much every film that's ever made, this was this was done in chronological order. Usually when you go on, on set or whatever, or when a film has been made, they might shoot the last scene of the day, last scene of the film first, they might shoot the first last, they might do this and that, this and that. Whereas Jaws, because it was being written and because they had so many problems behind the scenes, it just went, you know, beginning, middle, end, that's how they shot this film. And then they went back and obviously put this scare scene in with Ben Gardner, which to this day, still like, I always sit there in the, like when I'm watching, I'm in the cinema at home, just like waiting for it with that added like kind of, sharp I don't know noise that comes with it of the face popping out of the darkness but Spielberg said he got a little bit too greedy with this because on the test viewings of Jaws when we get to see the shark for the first time pretty much well yeah when it comes out of the water for the first time obviously when uh, Brody's throwing the chum the audience had such such a response and reaction to that that Spielberg said that he, he, he like, like I've already said he got greedy he wanted to do it he wanted something else in there um, but by adding this scare in um, for um by adding the scare in, sorry, for, for, for the Ben Gardner situation, it kind of took away the actual scare for the, the reveal of Bruce the Shark later on in the film. But still, they're great moments, though. Like, the, 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 the famous you're going to need a bigger boat line, obviously, which we know that is uh, ad-libbed, it wasn't part of the script, but all of that moment is so good. Like, taking nothing away, for, for me personally, when you see it, when it just pops up, it's still like a, oh, look at that bad boy there. You know what I mean? There's 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 just, It's all-round perfection from Brody's quip, you know, about him saying, you know, I can go slow ahead, you come down and chum some of this shit, or whatever he's saying, and then the shark pops up to say hello behind him, to that reaction of him dashing back and staying still with the cigarette in his mouth and slowly walking backwards with no no change in his face whatsoever, to then ad-lib that line, it's just absolutely, it's just all-round brilliant, you know, when the shark is homing in and really picking up in that second half of the film, just marvellous. Uh, another thing I forgot to mention as well in terms of, you know, like Brody and Roy, Roy Scheider's uh, casting as Brody is that he first, he caught wind of the film itself uh, being made because I, th- I believe he heard Spielberg talk about it at a party. He was talking about, uh, I think it was, um, it was a, a, some form of party event or something anyways, but he heard the idea of the shark 
jumping out of the boat at the end, uh, jumping onto the boat at the end, sorry, and obviously attacking Quinn. And ever since then, he was intrigued. But Spielberg had considered Charlton Heston for the role of Brody. Um, both Heston and Universal Studios were interested in doing so. But the, the main reason that Spielberg decided against casting Heston was because of these like heroic roles that Heston was notorious for playing within his films, in his catalogue. Spielberg reasoned that if Heston would have been cast, it would have sig- it signifies to the audience that the shark has virtually no chance against this larger-than-life hero. And then Heston was slightly annoyed about being rejected for the role of Brody that he later made disparaging comments about Steven Spielberg and vowed never to work with him. But, and then later turned down uh, Spielberg's offer for the role of uh, General Stilwell in uh, 1941. So, bit of bad blood there, but still, I, I, I couldn't really... I like this idea, because again, you don't... When, when it comes to casting, you want someone that could be beaten in a way, especially with something like this. Like, Roy Scheider is just this innocent cop that's just, as I said, the chief, I should say, that's just pulled into this. If you had someone like Charlton Heston, it'd be a bit like casting... I don't know Chuck Norris, and then you be, and then once the shark is defeated, you'd be like, well, of course, because Chuck Norris has has been cast in this, it wouldn't work. So, you know, credit to Roy Scheider though, because he does deliver such a fantastic performance. I really do. It's one of my favorite lead roles, easily within any any film. I do find uh, Roy Scheider so just very well. Uh, he just really got the role. You know, what I mean, like I think that he understood it, knew what he had to do. And um, I mean, he's even got his own dolly uh, shot in this as well, which is amazing. Or the jaw shot, or the vertigo shot, whatever you want to call it. When, when uh, Kitner is um, Kitner is uh, taken out, the young boy that's taken out in the film. Just again, these these moments that you'll see time and time again. They are timeless. They will never die. And that's why I'm like, just never, ever, ever remake this film. Please, God, don't do it. Uh, finally, then, obviously, the main three we have Quint. Uh, fantastic long take again for his introduction there's so many that Spielberg does say he'd have it all set up so that we could just continuously keep panning and keep filming but when he sat in that room with the community and the council and the chief were obviously debating about what they're going to do about closing the beaches and such after the young Alex Kittler's death when the camera's tracking and he's all there like you know you know what I do this and the other you know me all the way back and just just so we can fully listen to what Quint is saying and what the offer is making about catching the shark. And again, nice foreshadowing in this, because he does state the line, this shark will swallow you whole, which of course is how Quint goes out in this film. So again, Spielberg, you could tell that he's known what he's doing, because, I mean, I will touch upon obviously more of the writing session in a second as well, but, you know, from Peter Bench's novel, there's there's all these things that that, that do work really well, but as I've already stated, the, the care with the characters and such, or at least the thoughts... I just don't know. It's just it's not. It's not. They're not as good as what they would be. As what they are, sorry, I should say, in the actual feature length motion picture. I think that it's just uh, all round. I say you could tell that they really worked out how to make each character so so different. Um, but as I've said before, Quinn only appears for the first five minutes of the film, um, and then there's like a nice moment again when they think that they've caught the shark, and like Quinn's just there in the background, obviously on the, on his orca, you know, just coming across coming behind them and just having like a bit of a a bit of a chuckle like he lets out like a little bit of a laugh almost like insinuating that he knows that the shark that they've caught isn't the one that they're looking for and that's pretty much again what Hooper tries to explain to Brody and the mayor that the bite radius doesn't match and such the first victim but this this thing with Quint is that he's literally I mean when you get to see like his whole warehouse if you want to call it or whatever it is when it's all decorated with just you know jaws bones of shark jaws it's literally like the, the whole, that itself just kind of sums him up, you know, for a character. It's, it's the perfect kind of layout for this character. He's got a one-man war with sharks, butting heads with anyone at any time, especially Hooper. There's, they're complete opposites. Like I said, 
you know, Quinn is not a fan of the city man and the upper class background that Uber has. Like I think he says, like you've been counting money all your life. And Quint has worked and worked and worked on this like crusade to hunt and kill sharks. So to meet someone that has an admiration for the animals just doesn't sit right with him. Even though they're like really similar with their overall background and working with sharks, like even to the extent of having similar scars that they've gained over the course of working with them and when they're drinking on the York Raven and discussion about it, you know, kind of back and forth in before it leads up to the Indianapolis speech. Quint's motive is so far off what what Hooper's is that they can just never get along. Like they're constantly never getting along, and that's not me. And, that, and that's one of the things I love Hooper. Don't get me wrong, but that's not for me to say that. Oh, he never does anything wrong. It's like Quint knows his stuff. Like that moment when the shark first when the, when he first catches him on the line, and it's just slowly creaking his line. He's watching it, and Brody trying to do the knot. And then he's really having something it's pulling away and really struggling to keep it, thinking it's gone under the boat. And then Hooper's there in the background being like, nah, this isn't a shark. I'm telling you, it's not a shark. Like, really kind of smug and like, I know I'm right. This is definitely not a shark, mate. You are completely wrong. Let it go. We'll start again kind of thing. To Obviously, it was a shark. And again, Quince, the first person to be like, you don't tell me about my business kind of thing. This is it. It's like that. neither of them, I would say, are innocent because they're just constantly at each other's throats pretty much the whole way through. The only time that I would say that they do get along is, of course, when they're drunk and having the, the kind of comparison of the scars, but then, like, they have to work together when the engine explodes or this, that, and the other due to the due to the uh, sheer uh, amount of salt water and this and that, and they're kind of just underneath the orca and, you know, as the hands reach up trying to grab different, ob- different instruments and objects or whatever that they need. Tools is the word I'm looking for to fix the boat. And, and I've already stated, obviously, Hooper's inter- first uh, encounter with the shark, you know, it's a very nice affair and all like, oh my word, I've just seen a shark, it's a tiny boat, I really love them, to like Quint's first encounter with the sharks, you know, being on the sunken USSR Indianapolis where men were left bobbing in the sea after it was torpedoed and then the sharks would just pick them off one by one. You know, it goes into great detail as well of like the screams that you could hear as the eyes turn black and such and the shark not leaving you alone. This and the other, maybe it'll go away one time, maybe it won't. This is exactly, again, what we hear when Quint does die and in the film when, when, when Bruce the shark jumps on and starts having a good old chomp on Quint. Everything there is just like, you say, it's so hard. that story is just frightening, you know what I mean? Like you sit there as he delivers that speech, which again... Credit to Robert Shaw's performance in this because it's it's a long take again. I've so I've told you Spielberg uses a lot of long takes in this film, but there's another long take in this film where we just sit and it's just all about the words, all about the speech, which is why I think it was so key and so important that they got this moment right. Because like I said before, Robert Shaw had a really bad drinking problem. So this they tried shooting this numerous times on one particular evening. It just wasn't working. It wasn't happening. He was slurring his words or the sound of the other. Whatever you've heard about it, obviously I'm you know, I'm not gonna bring anything new to that, but still he had a obviously torrid time with that. And then in the end, I think it was the next day, uh, he rang Spielberg and said, like, look, I, I wanna go again, I wanna try again. Came in, first take, boom, that's what you get in the film. It is easily one of the best moments in cinema for me. I think it's just you don't have to see it. You don't have you just all you have to do is listen to Quint's harrowing tale to know that it was uh, yeah very very frightening frightening experience. But all the same, fantastic performance from Quint. And it is like a it's one of those because like in comparison to his death in the book, his death in this film is so great. Like in terms like just so it's horrible. Don't get me wrong, but. The way that he goes out in the film, in the book, sorry again, spoilers for the book, is that obviously the shark. I think it, they they've got the barrels or they've got some what they've got rope that's that's hooked into the shark or whatever, but it gets caught around Quint's uh, Quint's foot, and as the shark jumps, obviously it catches Quint. They fall into the sea together. 
the shark's death as one of the book is pretty terrible. But either way, like the shark as a shark's plummeting through the sea, Quint essentially drowns because uh, I believe that Brody looks under the water to just to watch you know Quint's lifeless body be pulled down to the bottom of the ocean kind of thing. Because at the same time, the shark dies as well, which is quite poetic in a way, which is something that obviously the film doesn't have. But I don't think we lose anything with that because it's so right what Spielberg did with the with the destruction and the, the taking down of the shark. You know, the book it's a case of due to like the wounds and the stab wounds that it takes from Quint or whatever. That's what kills it. It just dies pretty much. Which again, I'm sorry for spoiling that. If you if you are thinking of reading the book, do read it anyways. Because even though I've just said that, like I I. I Everything is definitely worth a read. There's there's stuff that you'll see that you're like, I'm glad they didn't do that in the film, but I'll come to that in a second. But like um, Spielberg is saying to the producers and such, and even to Peter Benchley as well, like because Peter Benchley was brought on board to do the screenplays and to he, he wrote the first draft of the film, which got thrown out the window. And in fact, Peter Benchley was pretty much removed from set because he was really against Spielberg's idea of how to end the film, which was a case of obviously blowing the shark up, having Brody, you know, do it that way. Because I think that it was there was so many subplots, obviously, that that Spielberg wanted to get rid of. But the main thing for Spielberg was that the audience need a reward for sitting through, for enduring all this nightmare, this 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 you know crusade of taking this shark down, having these characters pit up against this great white shark, this twenty five foot of great white shark. You know, they need a payoff. They need something. And that's where the idea of obviously blowing it up uh, came from. And I, and it is so worth that moment because the intensity and that moment of, the, you know, the orcas sinking, Brody. And another just a quick scary moment that I always forget about that does make me jump every now and then is like when, when the ship is sinking and Brody's in the, the cabin or whatever of the orca and, and Bruce the shark comes through the window. It just comes from nowhere, this huge shark. And after obviously after eating Quint, that still as well is a bit of like a oh that's where you know I obviously I've seen it numerous times to know but when you first watch that you're like I do, what's going on now but you know the intensity of 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 having Brody on that boat this is again as I've already stated a guy that's terrified of water knowing that he's on his own because Hooper's well to his uh, to his assumption he's died obviously in the shark cage that's gone in but to have him you know coming down having to try to take the shark out and with the with again John Williams emphatic score as well building and building and building as each shot he's taken at Bruce is missing only for that last one to obviously have the explosion to, to, to obviously kill it um it's just a remarkable remarkable moment and just one that I always can't help but smile like you feel the joy that Brody has in that moment when he lets out that huge laugh uh, of, of, I can't believe that's actually just worked and that's actually happened. So again, sh- just sheer genius from Spielberg to change things up because that's not the only thing that he changed up. Obviously, there's like subplots with the mafia that are involved. Like the mayor has got ties with the mafia, which is why they're which is why he's so hell bent on not closing the beaches because they're making him not essentially. You know, I mean, he's got ties with that. Uh, the other subplot that I'm really glad that was removed was that there's a an affair between uh, Ellen Brody and Hooper, which just doesn't add anything. Like, even when I was reading the book, I remember sat there and I was like, what is this bringing to it? It's almost like just fleshing out the story. So it's nice that, you know, they they did that Spielberg did take that out and say it was heavily, heavily taken down. But like I said, this is what we're talking about when the characters are so unlikable. It's like, because in the book... Again, sorry for going in and in, in comparing and comparing or whatever, but Hooper does die in the book. Like he gets eaten in that shark cage, and it's almost like 
you're fine with it because of what he's done to to Brody and such. Like they're supposed to be really good friends or whatever, and that's happened. Whereas in this, like you don't want that to happen. I do believe that originally the idea was for Hooper to still meet his demise in that shark in that shark cage incident in the film, but they just couldn't work it out with logi- you know logistics and whatever trying to film that. That they in the end um, went for a different approach with that. But the film is say that the the, other, the main thing we, we've not really we've touched upon it, but not so much is the fantastic score by John Williams. I mean, John Williams is just a genius and a master and just a wizard when it comes to making uh, soundtracks and scores for films. But you know, when he originally played this score for for director Steven Spielberg, Spielberg thought it was a joke uh, and laughed and said, "That's that's pretty funny." But you know, what have you really got in mind for the theme? Um, and then Spielberg later stated that without Williams' score, the movie would never, uh, the movie would only have been half as successful. And according to Williams, it did jumpstart his career because it is just amazing, isn't it? Like this is for me when I come back to like my Jaws memory or moment as a youngster, because you know my first viewing of it, or like my first knowledge of Jaws, wasn't with the music itself. Obviously, that come that comes obviously in, in a second or two when I talk about that. But I remember seeing the poster for Jaws when I went to a family event once, very young. And being like, what is that? I remember asking like my, my dad, my relatives, like, what is this film, this huge shark? And they were telling me about it. And it's like almost like, you know, when you hear something and you think, I want to watch it, but I'm too scared to at the same time. And I remember picking it up on VHS again, very young. But you've got to remember that this was still a PG on VHS and such. And like, we all have those moments of like, we know we can either remember our first viewing of Jaws or remember that fear or feeling that it gives us when we do watch it. I remember going to the till with Jaws and the first thing the lady said to me when I was buying it, she's like, oh, love this film i love the music so so much and that's it isn't it that's that's the thing like it's it's so rare that we get a film that the imagery and the score are so on the same level important because obviously this is all down to the fact that we don't really get to see much of the shark but by using this this dreaded theme that obviously that the, the, the john williams cooked up and and threw out there obviously for <clears throat> for the shark theme it just it amplifies it so much more, and there's that sense of like wonder as well, like using like cello and stuff like that, and and you know flutes and whatever that John Williams, um, you know puts in puts into his moments of like this that that wondrous feeling, as I say, where you can go from floating about, obviously seeing POV of the shark, just kind of looking at either feet or whatever, or just what whatever to then straight back to the strings and that infamous Jaws theme, making those encounters just so much more powerful. But it's to say, it's just one of the few movies where it is hand in hand with what you're seeing on screen. And it's up there, isn't it? Like anything, it's one of those to say, as soon as you hum that noise, it's been mocked, it's been spoofed, mocked or whatever you want to call it in so many films since Airplane did it, this, that and the other. Anacondas have had it in there in terms of like someone just going dirdum to, but that's it. You say dirdum, dirdum to someone, they know straight away that you're referencing Jaws or whatever. It's like we go to swimming baths or whatever. We go with friends or we go with our families or whatever. There'll be someone in there, if not yourself, usually me, doing the Jaws theme. It's just something that is so memorable and so powerful. That's something that John Williams always nails on with his music. And I, I personally say this, and again, Jurassic Park is my favorite, up there with my favorite film as well with Jaws. Both of those themes they're just too memorable, too just just amazing. Obviously, I know he's done work with Star Wars and such, and Star Wars, again, as a kid, was a huge influence and in, impact on my sci-fi love or whatever, but these two, for me, I say, in particular, Jaws, they're just just magnificent, just absolutely just, uh, yeah, superb, absolutely superb. You know, by having these 
problems behind the scenes, it only made this film better in such a straight... Like, that shouldn't happen. Like, you, we hear nightmare upon nightmare behind the scenes drama. You only have to listen to what's going off with, like, Don't Worry Darling, which I've still not yet seen. I will eventually. But, like, everyone, everyone knows now. I mean, like, this is the thing that like, back... In 75, when this film was being made, obviously, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Facebook, or whatever. we didn't have, like, constant rumours and deadline reports, or whatever, of just absolute nonsense and shenanigans that's going on, and this and that. But, like, it's like now we see Don't Worry Darling is getting, you know, split reviews. Some people like it, some people don't. But, like, you feel like whenever you hear a film has got bad, you know, a bad, uh, bad behind the scenes and, and, and bad, you know, filming schedules or anything just going off that's just causing a bit of a problem... Nine times out of ten, I would say the film doesn't usually work out. It might be all right, but I would never say it's going to be as a huge success. This, like, you're talking about, like I've already stated, this film became the first ever summer blockbuster. This was massive. You know what I mean? There's so many great moments in this film that I absolutely love. And like Spielberg, again, just utilises everything that he can, knowing that he can only show so much of the shark, obviously, within this film, and that we're going to go for that POV aspect. But like what he uses instead to instill the fear, or at least let the audience know that the shark is nearby... You know, for example, you've got the two gentlemen that go to try and catch the shark, obviously, by using the, the, the holiday roast that their wife had. They throw it in. The shark obviously pulls pulls half the harbour off or whatever. And then we use that, like that the, the, the wood in the harbour, to represent and reflect the shark as it turns around. That moment when he starts to swim out and then, and then it just starts to turn around on the, say, the dock, the wooden dock in the sea, and starts coming back towards the gentleman that's trying to swim back to land. Terrifying. Obviously, you've got John Williams and Scott in the background as well, but we're using that as a shark and then if that's not if that's one thing we get to use the barrels as well obviously put the three barrels on the shark obviously a one two three or whatever that quint fires at it that's how we know that the shark is close by you know i mean because they'll just pop up and you're like oh god here we go again like the sharks sharks due any minute kind of thing but it, they're just they're just absolutely terrifying so for five ten minutes of bruce that's in this film all in all just really great so the, the, so the moment in the pond for me like with the uh, when when obviously Michael nearly gets uh, taken out with his friends, but the, the the poor gentleman in the red boat does get eaten. Like absolutely, just harrowing. When you see the silhouette of of, of the shark underneath, the, like I said, just near the surface with its jaws gaping open and the guy screaming this and that, like it's just you sit there you're like my god. And I believe as well that moment was meant to be even more terrifying. So I think they had to dial it down so they kind of get the rating they were looking for. And obviously Spielberg wanted to show us as much of the shark as possible. Like they had so many different ideas that they wanted to do. Obviously, I know that Alex Kittner's death, there's a few behind the scenes photos which you can find on the internet where that was going to be a bit more harrowing as well and, and such. Like he wanted to show us the shark. And his original idea for introducing Bruce was going to be a scene that took place at the dock at night. The harbour master would be watching his TV and through the window behind him, the audience would see a row of boats rising and falling as a shark swam underneath him. And Spielberg wanted, you know, believed that that swell of the boats would help indicate the huge size of the shark. But due to logistics involved, you know, getting all the boats to go up and down and such, and at the correct intervals, you know, it proved way too difficult to coordinate. And obviously, the constant <laughs> malfunctioning shark just wouldn't allow the scene to be filmed. And obviously, disappointingly, it did have to get um, it did have to get shelled. It's quite funny as well because I think that they actually started to re refer to the shark as the great white turd when <laughs> became so frustrated with how troublesome the animatronic uh, fish was but even that though like i said because we don't see 
much of um you know much of the shark again it, it's that thing again of playing on your imagination that's why the book scared so many people that's why the film scared so many people because it's that fear of the unknown that's beneath you when you're in the sea it's that thing again of that you don't know what is directly and inadvertent straight you know below you and that's something that i've <laughs> i've always had a fear of. i've never been a very good swimmer but I, I i think seeing this film quite young probably may have had a hand in it who knows but still that's the thing and and i, I like that Spielberg's like, okay, well, we'll play on that. You know, we'll 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 only show POV shots or at least limited shark shots to gain that fear and that thing. You could be at the beach having a nice time. Next thing you know, you're having to scramble to get out and get away from it. It's just again one of those things that worked so well in having all of these issues. It just worked so well. Um, and like like I've already said, as you can probably tell, like I just think this film is absolutely. Absolutely marvelous for what he did. I say, it's just so worth it. All I said, the pacing is excellent. I say, we don't have all these ridiculous subplots in the books. It just everyone that's I say feel that's worked and they really wanted it to work. As much as the film to create it was an absolute nightmare, I do feel that like I, like I said before, the film is better than the book. There's a lot to really love with this film, and there's so much to uh, just to pick apart within it and say and just pick out your favorite moments. I'd I'd love to sit and just go and just hear different people's different favorite moments of this film because i have way too many to say i think that as i said the dolly shot on the on the beach for martin brody is excellent the pond sequences as much as it absolutely just terrifies me to my core when seeing bruce obviously the silhouette of him that is obviously um that again is excellent the whole second act of the film like i said the whole film itself is is perfect for me but that second act when we see these three men you know in a confined space on the boat trying to take the shot down you know waiting to eventually see how this how this is going to play out are they going to stop it are they not it's just all brilliant said so those three people together say quint your brody and your hooper there's just something about it that just i think that again inspired so many more films of having these like really great character dynamics between a, a certain type of characters but yeah i i just think it's just all in all a, a very very good film it is a definite 10 out of 10 for me as jaws like i absolutely love it and uh I just thought for the 100th episode, let's do a revisit. Let's just go over it again, 1975. I mean, I, I wish in some way that I was around just to see that kind of hype because in modern cinema, you know, we, we rely on social media and such now, you know, like you look at like what happened with Avengers and such, or like the, how many times the box office has been broken in the last couple of years, you know, like with Star Wars and such, like it's so different to how things were, you know, in the in the 70s or whatever that I kind of wish if I could have a, if I could time travel, sorry, like a device, like a TARDIS or whatever, basically, I would definitely go back to visit and see what it was like just around or just like queue up and listen to people talk about Jaws and stuff because I'd imagine it was just like, Again, that word of mouth thing, or just that, that, that just just to see how terrifying it was, because this is almost like doubled as a horror as well, which is uh, fascinating. To say it was a PG, eh? But still, yes, very good. Say for Spielberg's first directorial uh, film, uh, main feature that is, um, he's just stunning, like absolutely marvelous. Just little details as well, like I mean, the opening when we you can hear the underwater and such, and we get to see when when John Williams' the score comes in, you know, you get the three names. Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and uh, Robert Shaw. They're in like a triangle, but it's a just off triangle. So it looks like a fin, like a shark fin. It's those like kind of details that I think, yes, this is going to be a very good time. And I say, if it weren't for all these problems, this, this, and if it wasn't for John Williams' score in particular, um, it's almost like this film just wouldn't be as good as what it was. And I just think everything happens for a reason. And this film is always meant to be the best summer blockbuster you know what i mean like it's just going to be just don't remake it for god's sake people don't remake it like do 
your deep blue seas, your open waters, your megalodons and stuff like that. Just leave, leave Jaws alone, man. Like we had three sequels at the back of this, and only like one of them is decent, and that's the second one, obviously, because you love. If you've had che- if you have checked out my Jaws two podcast, do say, thank you. But if you haven't, go and have a listen. Not even listen to the first one. There's just a lot I absolutely love about this film. I probably rambled on for an awful lot of time, but thank you ever so much though for listening. As I say, it's the 100th episode. Um, thank you, as always, for, for clicking on and listening. It really is appreciated. As I say, let me know your thoughts on Jaws, though. I say for me, 10 out of 10, all-time favourite. I'm sure there's people out there who say will love this film just as much as I do. I'm more interested, though, to hear if you don't like it, if I'm being honest. So let's have a chat if you don't like it. But thank you ever so much, of course, for listening to this podcast, we are available on rss.com, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, all that jazz. Give us a like and follow on Facebook. Any requests and recommendations that you want to hear for the podcast, again, do not hesitate to get in touch. I'd love to know what you're watching and what you'd like to hear me waffle about, if anything, because you could just be putting up with me as it is already. So, hey, thank you all the same, though. Until the next episode, though, take care. <laughs>